This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, June 11th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Thanks to a new study that sequenced the genomes of several types of wild melons, we may now know the origins of the watermelon. But we still don't know how tornadoes are formed. And that's a problem. Plus, in a bid to continue dominating all Halloween-themed playlists, Danny Elfman released a new punk rock album today, his first since 1994. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Growing up in Tornado Alley, watching the sky turn an eerie green quickly followed by the screeching of my town's emergency sirens was a routine part of my life in the springtime. I spent the better part of several birthdays as a kid, sitting in a line with my classmates along a cinder block wall in one of the elementary school's windowless hallways that was designated as our tornado shelter. But for all the time I spent waiting for tornadoes to hit when I was a kid in North Texas, they almost never did. Vox reports that the false alarm rate for tornadoes, as issued by the National Weather Service, can be as high as 70 to 80 percent. But when they're right, people often only have a few minutes to take shelter. The lead time for tornado warnings has actually dropped in recent years, down from 13 minutes in 2011 to just 8.4 minutes over the last decade. That's literally the difference between life and death for the 68 people on average who are killed by tornadoes every year in the U.S. And even for survivors, their homes and entire towns are often destroyed, resulting in billions of dollars of damage each year, according to Vox. Why is the lead time so short for tornado warnings? Especially when predictions on other natural disasters like hurricanes have improved by leaps and bounds in recent decades? Part of the problem is that, on a granular level, scientists still don't know exactly how tornadoes form. We do know that they mostly come from supercell storms, which are especially gnarly thunderstorms which rotate in an almost hurricane-like way. Supercell storms are particularly common in the middle of the U.S., the so-called Tornado Alley I mentioned, running from South Dakota down through North Texas. Tornado Alley gets a concoction of moist, warm air from the Gulf of Mexico, warm, dry air from the Southwest, and cold, dry air from the Mountain West, like Wyoming and Idaho area. Mix this all together with a jet stream coming in from the Rockies, and you've got yourself the perfect recipe for a killer tornado. Except they don't all produce tornadoes, and trying to tell which supercell thunderstorm will is incredibly difficult. Quoting Vox, You need a lot of moisture in the atmosphere and a lot of wind shear, or variations in wind speed and direction. This gets a storm spinning. You also need atmospheric instability, which allows updrafts to occur, and lift, or upward motion of air that gets the storm to spin along a vertical axis. Each of those, you can think of them as like four knobs, and depending on how much you tune one versus the other, that will determine what type of thunderstorm you get and how likely it is to produce a tornado, says Robin Tenamachi, a tornado scientist at Purdue University. 
But whatever sparks a tornado happens on a much smaller scale, perhaps at the level of individual molecules in the atmosphere, and is highly impacted by peculiarities of the local geography. Even trees can disrupt surface circulation as opposed to grassland, and that can affect tornado formation, says Jeff Weber from the University Corporation of Atmospheric Research. The atmospheric conditions that produce a tornado in Oklahoma would not necessarily produce a tornado in Alabama. Many storms even produce rotating winds without leading to a twister. The question that we're trying to solve is, how do you take that rotation and concentrate it to a point where you have this very narrow, intense vortex that we call a tornado? Tanamachi says, meteorologists haven't agreed on an answer to that question yet, end quote. Tenomachi explains one theory of the tornadoes forming from the bottom up, from a disturbance on the ground that connects with an updraft in the thunderstorm and then gets faster and faster like a figure skater who pulls her arms in to spin even faster. Or they could form from the storm cloud, or it could be a mix of the two. Tanamachi explains part of the reason we still aren't sure is because it all happens so fast. Mere minutes versus the days that we have to watch a hurricane and pelt it with all sorts of observational tools. She told Vox, quote, It seems like the processes that control whether tornadoes form or not happen on timescales of a minute or less, and within just a couple hundred feet of the surface, which is a very hard area to scan with radar, end quote. As anyone who's seen Twister can attest, tornadoes also don't tend to care about your schedule or equipment. Catching one when you're ready to study it is extremely difficult, and ensuring your tools aren't destroyed by the storm is even more challenging. Like in Twister, we could use some more groundbreaking equipment. Tenomachi points out that the current radar network is even older than that movie. So newer systems called phased array radar, which don't mechanically spin and can scan more quickly, could help scientists spot tornadoes earlier and study their formation more clearly. Amy McGovern, a meteorologist at the University of Oklahoma, is giving artificial intelligence a try, using it to spot patterns in radar data that humans haven't yet. She thinks at the very least it may be able to cut down on false alarms. And that might be the most promising direction in terms of having a longer advanced warning time, if not completely understanding tornadoes. Remember how every tiny detail of a particular environment affects the tornado forming or not? Tanamachi says if we had a model that could run every single molecule of the atmosphere through a simulation, we could predict when and where tornadoes will form. Which, of course, is an enormous undertaking, but it's a direction that physics, AI, and modeling are going in already, so it's not exactly beyond the realm of possibility. And scientists are optimistic. Weber says, as short as our lead times are now, they're a massive improvement over the last half a century or so. He told Vox, quote, If you look back in the 50s, even as late as the 70s or the 80s, tornadoes, they kind of came out of nowhere, end quote. Give ourselves another 70 to 100 years, and Weber says he has no doubt in his mind we'll have, quote, a far greater accuracy for warning communities when a tornado is going to literally drop out of the sky, end quote. Proponents of sustainability and buying local say it's always good to know where your food comes from. Well, when you bite into a cool, juicy watermelon this summer, you can take that adage to the next level, because a paper published Monday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences have traced the origins of the watermelon back to a particular East African melon. 
Scientists have long known that the watermelon originated on the African continent, but they've debated whether the watermelon's closest ancestor lay in the West African region, Northeastern Africa, or Southern Africa. This new study, however, inspired in part by a drawing on a tomb in the Nile Valley from 4,300 years ago of what certainly appears to be a close relative to the watermelon placed with other fruit on a table, decided to take a look back at the Kordofan melon, which is native to the Kordofan region of Sudan. Quoting the New York Times, The Kordofan melon, which is about six inches wide, white on the inside, and a pale, gently striated green on the outside, has long been grown by farmers in what is now Sudan. In the late 1800s, a German botanist wrote that it might be a progenitor of the modern watermelon. Later, Soviet scientists wondered the same thing. Most members of the watermelon's genus Citrillus have bitter flesh, but the Kordofan melon is sweet. That suggested it or one of its ancestors could be the source of the modern watermelon. To see where it fell in the watermelon family tree, the researchers behind the current paper sequenced the genomes of seven Citrillus species. They found that the Kordofan melon had much more overlap with the modern variety than with the West African agusi or any other melons, suggesting that they are more closely related, end quote. The theory goes that the Kordofan melon and the watermelon share a common ancestor in a much older wild melon, which, according to the New York Times, farmers would have realized was sweeter and more tasty, so they bred it into other varieties. Who did that and when and exactly where, of course, is unknown. But the same team of researchers are continuing to sequence the genomes of melon seeds from surrounding archaeological sites in Africa to see if they can continue piecing together the melon's history. Now, apart from being interesting and taking very literally the idea of knowing where your food comes from, why is this finding significant? Quoting again from the New York Times, The wild relatives of domesticated crops can be sources of fresh, interesting genes for breeders. A new color, a hardy resistance to drought, or a new way to fight off blight are the kinds of treasures wild plants can bring to the gene pool of domesticated varieties, end quote. And the Kordofan melon in particular was found in the study to have different genes for disease resistance than our modern watermelon, which is particularly exciting because the watermelon today is highly susceptible to disease and pests. Professor Suzanne Renner, who helped lead the study, said in SciNews, quote, Today's watermelon comes from a very small genetic stock and is highly susceptible to diseases and insect pests, including various mildews, other fungi, viruses, and nematodes. There are specific watermelon diseases, such as the watermelon mosaic virus, and they're also very sensitive to fungal infections. In conventional agriculture, they are frequently treated with fungicides and insecticides to limit virus transfer. Our analysis clearly shows that the Kordofan melon has more disease-resistant genes, and different versions of those, too. This means that the genome of the Kordofan melon has the potential to help us breed disease-resistant watermelons and allow non-GM gene editing. Achieving this would be reducing substantially pesticide use in watermelon farming. End quote. In general, though, it can be tough to find these wild relatives of domesticated crops because many of them are going extinct due to climate change, which makes the ones that we can identify and get seeds for even more valuable. Because once they're gone, so too are any benefits we may have been able to squeeze out of them to improve our existing crops. 
That's the future. But if we wanted to go back even further than the Cordifon Melon, and even before the unknown sweet melon that led to the Cordifon Melon, if we go back a hundred million years, we find the melon-like fruit that eventually became not just watermelons and cantaloupes and what have you, but also cucumbers, squash, pumpkins, and more. All from just one fruit. But that's an evolutionary story for this fall. For now, enjoy your watermelon this summer with a side of genetic history. Depending, perhaps, on your age, you probably associate Danny Elfman as either the frontman of Oingo Boingo or as Tim Burton's go-to composer, the voice of Jack Skellington and maestro of all twee goth cult classics. His composing work has also taken him to more refined spaces with his work on Goodwill Hunting and the biopic Milk. Now he's emerging from lockdown with an all-new punk rock album, his first EP in almost 30 years. Some may be surprised at the 68-year-old, in his words to the ringer, old statesman composer releasing a punk album, but Elfman says he's used to being the outsider. In an interview with The Ringer, Elfman said, quote, When I was in theater for seven years, theater critics all hated what we were doing, this weird cabaret. I get it. It was weird. And then I start a band, and it's like, we don't know what this shit is. And again, we were reviled. And I loved that. I actually always wanted to take our worst reviews and print them in our ads. And when I became a composer, it was already my third time around. It was like, oh my god, they hate my guts coming from a rock band and bursting into film composition in a big way. They spent ten years trying to find who my ghostwriter was because everybody was sure that it wasn't me. End quote. And he still seems to ping-pong back and forth between a more serious musician and a chaotic, performative rock and roller. You can see that still on this latest album, which expanded into a double EP as music just kept coming out of Elfman during lockdown in what he described as a therapeutic way. Quoting The Ringer, It became a double album not just because of the volume, but conceptually, alternating between the manic, thrashing, kick me, the perfect embodiment of celebrity in Los Angeles, says longtime fan Henry Rollins, and the slow-melting iceberg of strings on We Belong. With evocative lyrics, Elfman stretches out in a haunting baritone that calls to mind an older David Bowie, end quote. And I have to agree, that track We Belong really wouldn't sound out of place on Bowie's final album, Black Star. But here's a listen to the track Sorry, which encapsulates Elfman's anger and anxieties around America's political climate, described by Rollins as, quote, compositionally overwhelming and assaultive, but also smart and bristling. The whole album, Big Mess, is available for purchase and streaming everywhere, but I'm putting a link in the show notes to a playlist of the songs on his record label's YouTube channel because a number of them have music videos that are just really weirdly great video art. Maybe something to kind of zone out to this weekend. 
So Lord of the Rings is getting the anime treatment. New Line Cinema, who produced the two feature film trilogies, is now partnering with Warner Brothers Animation to create an anime feature called The Lord of the Rings, The War of Rohirrim. Quoting Variety, The standalone feature will depict the bloody saga behind Helm's Deep, the fortress depicted in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and the man in whose honor it's named, Helm Hammerhand, the legendary king of Rohan, who spent much of his reign locked in a prolonged and costly war. Veteran anime filmmaker Kenji Kamiyama, who helmed Netflix's Ultraman anime series, will direct the film from a screenplay by Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews, end quote. The film is meant to connect with the six Peter Jackson-directed films, but not with the upcoming Amazon series, which takes place thousands of years prior to the events of the main stories during the Second Age of Middle-Earth. There's no exact release date yet for either the Amazon series or the new anime film, but the latter is being fast-tracked, perhaps to try to beat Amazon to market. So no shortage of Lord of the Rings content in the coming years. But that is it for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.